Welcome to a patient safety podcast from Crico. Crico is the patient safety and medical malpractice company owned by and serving the Harvard medical community since 1976. When it comes to clinical guidelines, providers often ask, does following a clinical guideline or published algorithm in the course of evaluating a patient or recommending treatment have implications for professional liability? In other words, if something goes wrong and a patient blames the doctor, do clinical guidelines help or hurt in the defense of a malpractice claim? Crico recently asked a leading defense attorney in Boston for some insights. Ellen Epstein-Cohen joins us now. She's a partner with Adler, Cohen, Harvey, Wakeman, and Gugazian. Ellen, thank you for joining us. The basic question is, do clinical guidelines help or hurt in the defense of a medical malpractice claim? Well, I think to answer that, you have to first ask the question, what's the role of the use of clinical guidelines in the practice of medicine? Because the best, strongest way to defend any medical malpractice allegation is to prove that you practiced good medicine. And so if you are in a specialty and there are guidelines that are published and widely used and referred to in the field, then it would be appropriate in treating the patient to use, refer to, and try to conform to those guidelines. And so I think the first question is, what area of specialty are you looking at and are there guidelines that are widely used and accepted? And once you say that, if you assume that there are, then the question becomes, if you, if you take the flip side, what is the significance if in a particular patient's care you do not comply with the guideline? Does that mean that you were negligent? And the answer to that is no. It doesn't mean you were negligent, but it would be one piece of evidence that a plaintiff lawyer an expert on the other side would use to try and argue that your care did not comply to the standard of care. So if I were to say it more simply, guidelines can be one piece of evidence in trying to prove what the standard of care is. Great. It doesn't matter which version was current at the time uh, of an event or is the long-term adherence uh, the thing that's critical? Well, that's a really good question. I think it's very important for healthcare providers to stay current, and we know that uh, the practice of medicine is not static. It's changing and evolving and improving all the time, and that's why the guidelines are changed and, and modified as the state of knowledge is increased and, and improved. And so a practitioner will be held to the standard of care that applies at the time of the treatment rendered. And many years down the road, when we're in a courtroom defending that care at a trial, we are faced with the question of which guidelines should we look at? And the answer to that is that the standard of care, which may be evidenced in part by what the guidelines were at that time, are what we look to because that's what the practitioner is held to. So even if the state of knowledge has changed um, over time, up through the time of trial, the, the physician or other healthcare provider would be held to the standard of care at the time of the treatment, which means that earlier versions of the guidelines are very important to us in defending these cases. How about the process 
behind developing <coughs> guidelines. Does that matter? Does the fact that we use subject matter experts, peer-reviewed articles, CRICO data, professional society pronouncements, does that make those guidelines better than those derived from a less rigorous process? I think that the more rigorous peer-reviewed guidelines are have greater weight and credibility in establishing what the standard of care is. As I said, they are only one factor that is in establishing that, but the more rigorously designed guidelines, the ones that are reviewed by blue ribbon panels, by people who are invited as experts in the field, the ones that are published in the peer review literature, the ones that are published by the leading national organization in a field of specialty, that those tend to have greater weight in in proving what the standard of care is and is not. And that makes a lot of sense, too. Do the disclaimers make any difference? I think they're very important. And as a defense lawyer, I have referred to them and read them aloud uh, to juries where necessary. I think it's very important to make clear that these are intended to guide and assist providers, but not to compel them to treat any particular patient in the same exact way as every other patient. They usually have some kind of disclaimer somewhere in the document which says that these are general guidelines and recommendations which, of course, must be modified um, or used within the judgment of the provider in the care of individual patients. I mean, I think guidelines are a very important part of first and foremost, providing good care and trying to uh, assist providers in how to approach specific medical issues, but I think they also play an important role in the courtroom in the defense of medical malpractice cases. Thank you. That was Ellen Epstein-Cohen, malpractice defense attorney and partner with Adler-Cohen, Harvey, Wakeman, Gagazian in Boston. I'm Tom Agello. This has been a patient safety podcast from Crico. More information about Crico and efforts at Harvard to deliver the safest healthcare in the world is available on our website at www.rmf.harvard.edu.